Welcome to the Let's Talk EMDR podcast brought to you by the EMDR International Association, or EMDRIA. I'm your host, Kim Howard. In this episode, we are talking with EMDR certified therapist and consultant, Laurel Thornton, about EMDR therapy and neurodiversity. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with EMDR certified therapist and consultant, Laurel Thornton, to talk about EMDR therapy and neurodiversity. Thank you, Laurel, for being here today. We are so happy that you said yes. Yes, Kim. Thanks for having me. I'm I'm excited to be here. It's one of my favorite things to do is talk about EMDR. So Yay. I'm looking so, forward to it. Laurel, can you tell us about your path to becoming an EMDR therapist? Yes. I love this question. I love origin stories. So I'm grateful that this is part of the podcast because I get to hear people that I admire tell their stories. So one of the things that I share when I facilitate basic training and meet new consultees is I was never a therapist without being an EMDR therapist. I was trained in graduate school by half. My first counseling class was taught by an EMDR consultant, and he explained how trauma works in the brain, which is actually something I had been exposed to in my undergraduate degree. I studied neuropsychology. And so my ears immediately perked up and I was interested. And he talked about how EMDR works and how bilateral works and that trauma is the most treatable mental disorder that there is. I mean, we could have, this is what he said, right? We could talk about whether or not we think that's true, but I was hooked. I was so fascinated that there was a way to do counseling and psychotherapy in which I got to work at a neurobiological level with people. And it really spoke to my personal belief that, you know, there's light in everybody and we're all have amazing gifts and with the right support, those gifts can be nurtured and expand. And with, you know, support that is shaming or othering, like they tend to be hidden, that light tends to be hidden and moved farther from the surface. So I was very excited. And then he brought a HAP training to our area 18 months after that. And so I was able to get trained during internship. And I had a wonderful mentor who let me practice an internship. He didn't know EMDR, but he believed in me. And he also like, hey, if falling fingers makes people feel better, I'm all for it. And so I had a lot of support early, but that's kind of how I came into EMDR. And then he actually hired me out of grad school. So my clinical training was under a in a private practice setting where all they treated was complex trauma. And the only modality that was used was, you know, AIP based EMDR, right? Some gestalt techniques, obviously phase two, you have a lot of options, but that's how the practice was advertised. And that's how I was trained. So that's a great story. I think we've had a handful of podcast guests who were exposed in their either at a college level or in post-college level. And so right out of the gate, they were exposed to somebody, somebody had brought it into the class and connected them. And, but most people are not, that's not their career path. Most of them come to us exposed after the fact, you know, five years into their career, maybe 10, maybe whoever, whatever the number is, and somebody that they know has done it. And they were connected through a friendship or professional colleague you have to try this therapy. It's really good. And yeah, da, 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 da. Oh, I don't know. It sounds a little woo woo, you know, I'm not really sure. Right. Woo woo magic. Pixie dust. We've had all those terms thrown around on this podcast. And so, and then they take the training and they're like, Oh yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm a believer now. And so I love to hear people's, as you said, origin story. So I always like to find out where they came from. Yeah. And it's so interesting to me that that's what gets said because I sat in graduate school, like this doesn't make any sense from a neural perspective, this. And then I heard about EMDR and said, finally, 
this is a type of psychotherapy that actually makes sense with how the salience network and limbic system work. So this is the first time I'm actually open to learning about something because the rest of the stuff doesn't make any sense why you would want to talk to someone when their left prefrontal cortex is offline. I don't get it. So it is funny that we have this woo-woo, you know, reputation when in fact, it, it really makes a lot of sense yeah. based on how the brain works, but yeah. it's also magic. I also say that about EMDR too, so yeah. I get it. Yeah. What is your favorite part of working with EMDR therapy? Well, I just kind of disclosed that a bit. You know, it's magic. I, That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> it's magic and I get to work with people's brains. So I, yeah, I started college thinking I wanted to be a business major and go into marketing and advertising. And then I went to a liberal arts school and you can't declare your major until your end of your sophomore year. So I, the first psychology class at my college was biocognition and behavior. And so it was all about how the brain works. I'm so grateful because I don't think I would have been a psych major had I had to sit through sort of your typical intro psych class at an amazing professor and got to learn about how the brain worked. And I, from there, this is what I want to do. And so that really, to me, is the magic is the brain is amazing and it explains so much. And there also is this piece that's so individualized that I constantly get to feel surprised and inspired. You know, I think it's pretty cool. The thing that I fell in love with at 18 in college, I still get to like be excited about 20 years later in my daily practice, you know, and people get better. Right. But yeah. Yeah. So I think it is, it's the, it's the intersection of individual magic and neuroscience that keeps me here and makes me a huge advocate of why more people need to be trained in this. That's an awesome story. And I, I too was a business major in college. I was, I was a couple of majors. First it was pre-med and I don't know why I thought I was going to be a doctor because I hate science and math and I'm not very good at it. And then I thought, oh, I'll do business. Everybody does business. I can do this. And then I got into accounting class and I could not get past the fact that credit was not a plus and debit was not a minus or vice versa, however it is. And I was like, oh, I can't. No, this one class, I just got to get through this. I cannot do this for multiple classes down the road. And then I took a speech communications class and the professor said, have you thought about journalism as a major? I'm like, no. And that's how I fell into my major. I could think you'd be really good at this. And that's how I fell into it. So yeah, I too was a business major and decided that was not for me. But I am glad that you found your career path at such a young age. That's really, I just interviewed Nancy Andino. And she said that when she was in her teens, she knew that she wanted to help people. She didn't know what it was or what it was called, but she wanted to work with people who needed help. And she knew yeah. it was something in the therapy world and related somehow. And, and that's really insightful to be that young and figure <laughs> that out, you know, Seriously. That, yeah, it's really, it's quite, it's not a, it's not one of those jobs where you can go home and kind of forget about what you do all day, you know, not that you want to take on all the burdens of your clients, but it's not a job to easily detach from, I don't think. And so hats off to you guys for figuring that out at a young age and pursuing your career field. So thank you. Well, there was some wandering in there, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking underwater basket weaving is good for me. Uh, what successes yeah. have you seen using EMDR therapy for the neurodiverse population? So Kim, I'll be super honest with you. When I read this question, there was a part of me that was like, oh gosh, I don't have any success stories and <laughs> I shouldn't be on the podcast. And so I'm going to out myself. I'm canceling right now. <laughs> right. But that's like so typical of ADHD, right? Like 
oh, um, something didn't immediately pop up for me. And so I don't have anything. And and then, you know, I, I, I practice this a lot. My brain has been this way my whole life because this was a split second, right? And I just giggled because one of the reasons that that happens to me is for so long, I didn't realize <laughs> that almost all my clients also had ADHD. And so, you know, they were drawn to me because of my energy and the fact that we, we would get distracted together and come back and, you know, that they felt safe. They didn't feel judged. And so, you know, when you like neurodiverse success stories, oh, I don't have any. And I was like, no, Laurel, that's sort of your central point of all of this is that we already work with a neurodiverse population, right? Because we're EMDR therapists, right? If I wasn't talking to EMDR therapists, we would have complex PTSD being a, ner- a form of neurodivergent thinking, right? But when you talk to EMDR therapists, they're like, okay, yes, I want to learn more about how to work with neurodiversity. And I'm like, remind you, you already do. What you're really asking is when there are other things added on to stress and trauma, how do I help them feel like this intervention fits them better? And so mostly like my goal for the talk at Andrea was to help people feel more comfortable to start that actually the person-centered or nervous system-centered approach of the AIP model is a perfect foundation. And if you really lean into that and co-create a space to work with your clients, like they'll help guide you what works and what doesn't. And, you know, like most things, I'm sure you've heard, like standard protocols, pretty amazing. And we edit it to better suit the person in front. So success stories, I think, for me, there's sort of that general, the way my brain works, the way I love EMDR. I didn't even really think about it too much. And I just did it and it worked. And I, you know, if we switch the speed of bilateral, we switch the speed of bilateral. So that's like one thing I think with ADHD. And then as I thought about it more, you know, I think one of my biggest success stories is helping people with traumatic brain injuries. And just, I got to pull some of that training I had on understanding what damaged parts of the brain, like how that might impact the system, but then really giving myself permission to slow down and have patience. And I was reflecting on this of working with traumatic brain injury. It's interesting because you never know what's going to show up in your office, right? right? So they're so sensitive to stress. One, hard to plan, but two, just show, working with what shows up. And some days, that might simply be getting someone's heart rate to come down enough so that they can take deep breaths and and really slow down their resourcing. And then I have someone else with a very serious TBI. And the last session I had with her, she'd had a really good week or she was sleeping well, her stress was managed. And had we recorded that session, I don't think any of you would have been able to tell she had such a serious TBI. She was having a really good day. I used fast bilateral. We flew through a target. And it was a great session and she felt good. And she walked out of here and she was driving. And then there've been some weeks where I've had to complete sentences for her. And I was thinking about how that felt sort of uneven cadence of treating some of these disorders. And also, wow, that's probably exactly what it's like for them, right? They don't know how their brain's going to feel on any given day. And sure, there's things we can control, but we all know we can't control the stressors of the environment. And so I think like that feels like a success, that permission of slowing down and just creating space for people to show up how they are, not generally, but in the day and in the moment. 
So that those are my two kind of polar examples that I had in reaction to that question. So thanks for asking. No, that's, that's good information. I, I mean, I don't know. I've never been a therapist, but I would presume that when people come in, it's never the same, right? So yeah. you could have that. You could be seeing the same client for a long time, but every time you have a session with them, that may not be the same. And so you, you have to give them and yourself permission to be flexible. Right. I mean, I think that's what, I think that's what a lot of people, why people are drawn to EMDR therapy is that there's some flexibility in it. And I mean, there's the standard protocol and there are, there are things that you do and there are the eight phases and, and there it's spelled out for you sort of, right. There's also this flexibility to sort of tailor your therapeutic approach, right? We've talked about this on a podcast before about how you guys really just have to customize your approach to all of your clients because all of your clients are different. You know, just yeah. because just because five of your clients have ADD or ADHD, that doesn't mean they come in with the same issues or the same responses. And you you kind of have to tailor what you're doing to them. And so you guys are, you know, like they used to say the Burger King slogan, you're having it your way. I mean, you, you're literally <laughs> just customizing every every client's experience. And so that's a lot, that's a lot to manage. So hats off to you guys. I think I would argue that's probably the fun part and what also reduces burnout in EMDR therapists, because it's really not so much about us. It's about their brain and how that brain is showing up today. And there's that excitement and novelty of, Ooh, I wonder how they're going to be doing today. And from there, what's possible. So yes, absolutely. And for me, at least it's what keeps me doing this. I joke, the only thing to hold my attention for, you know, over a decade has been soccer and EMDR. Um, <laughs> and I, I stick to that. There's just always more to learn and do. Good. So. I like it. Laurel, are there any myths that you would like to bust about EMDR therapy for neurodiversity? So first, I think it's nice to separate some terms. So neurodiversity is a fact, right? We are a neurodiverse population, meaning our brains are different. I think of it somewhat like fingerprints, right? You can recognize that it's a fingerprint, but the intricacies that make my fingerprint mine and your fingerprint yours are vast. So brains are like that and that it's on a continuum. So I think that's one thing is just anytime we talk about diversity, right? There's a whole long line. And then Mm -hmm. neurodivergent speaks to something that we could see right? It's a distinct difference, um, particularly in brain imaging. And so, you know, that's one thing is that there are many forms of neurodivergence and it's everywhere. And and we talk more about the diagnoses that tend to show up in developmental ways or preventing people from being successful in a neurotypically designed world. And so that that's just like one thing I like to start with is somewhat separating So with that, I think I start talking about the bilateral stimulation for the first part. Like I want to break up the myth about bilateral that we need to be scared of fast bilateral. (laughs) I went to a great presentation at the Andrea conference with Susan Darker Smith, and she said, bilateral stimulation is kindness to your neurodivergent clients. And I was like, yes, say it again. Right. And so that's one thing of ADHD, autism spectrum disorder, like they, people tend to really like the bilateral. So don't be scared of it. Bring it out early, have that be a way to get to know your office and your setting is like experimenting with incorporating bilateral. 
it's virtually impossible to have a panic attack when you're being bilaterally stimulated quickly. I'm sure someone could could do it, but it's it's so much harder. So I think that's one thing is in basic training, you know, we talk about slow bilateral for resourcing. A lot of processing disorders, the slow is almost anxiety producing. So again, when you talk about it's individualized, get curious and find the speed that their nervous system likes, then that's the right speed for them. So that's one is just use bilateral more and let them pick the speed, the person you're working with. And then, you know, I think another thing is that this is a new space. So if you're waiting to be an expert or go get a bunch of training on working with neurodiverse populations, we haven't created those yet. We're in the process and there's just so much to learn and so many differences. So I think the other myth busting is I would venture to say very few people feel like they're an expert in neurodiversity and EMDR. So with that, trust your training, case conceptualization, and work on what you know, I think no matter what your brain is like, shame is maladaptive. And so if you take that approach with any of your clients of reducing shame and increasing adaptive networks, you're going to be helpful. And then go get consultation or or go to a training. But if, if you wait to start until you feel like you have all the pieces, like you're probably not going to get started. So those are the two kind of big ones that I just feel motivated to share. Those are great, great points. And it's good for people to remember that there's no time like the present, right? In terms of propelling your offerings forward or serving more populations, if that is what you choose to do in terms of your EMDR therapy and seeking out your colleagues who are already practicing in those areas and getting the knowledge from them and and helping that expertise help you establish what you want to do. My son and my husband both have ADHD. And there are so many people out there like that who have become diagnosed with it over the the last, probably the last decade, maybe decade and a half, you know, in terms of the ability to, to do that. And so there are a lot of people out there who are, whose brains work differently than yours. And if my husband and my son are any examples, they are some of the smartest people that you will ever meet. Yeah. And so helping them to, to focus on things and get the things solved that they want to get solved is, is quite, quite a calling. You know, it's, it's a beautiful, I think being a therapist is just a beautiful vocation anyway, because you guys are literally helping people to heal. And so if you can do that kind of work and you can find the people in your field who who are doing those kinds of practices and getting their information. That's one thing I love about associations is that you already have that network. You know, when you belong to an association, you've got all these people who do what you do and you can seek any of them out for information and expertise and help. Yeah, absolutely. And Kim, I love that. I just want to like pause one thing you said of like your husband and your son are really intelligent. And I think that's another it's not such a common myth anymore, but what I would say from an AIP lens is think about all the cognitive work and, and somatic work that it takes for a brain that sees or processes or moves through the world differently to check off all the boxes that were created by someone's brain who worked very linearly, right? And to be inspired by that and pull on that. There's so much resilience in people whose brains process information differently because they 
functioned in a world that wasn't designed for them, which yes. I don't yeah. like, I'm not making a comment on that so much, but there's so much good in that. And yeah, yeah I read something as I was prepping for, for the Andrea conference that there's someone who has a hypothesis that every major advancement of humankind, like the aqueducts and these sort of just someone with dyslexia was involved in the project Mm -hmm. and this idea of like sort of the reverse thinking challenged everything. And then from there created something great. And I love that. And if, I don't know, to me, I'm like, that feels right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, my son is the oldest and my daughter uh, is the youngest. I have two. And I learned very early on when they were in elementary school that schools, and this is not a negative comment about schools or teachers or anything. Right. We've had some wonderful experiences over the years, but schools are basically kind of designed for girls. And I'm not trying <laughs> to like, I'm not trying to pigeonhole people, but you know, you go, you sit in a classroom, you do paperwork, you put stuff on a screen, yada, yada. And boys, they, in general, not all, they need to right. be hands-on. Like they want to go to the chemistry lab. They want to go to the automotive lab, you know, when they're in high school, they want to do those things. And that's how they learn, you know? Yep. And that's when I realized I'm like, holy cow, I've got two different learners in my household, you know, and how do we approach that? And how do we help them be successful? And it was, I will tell you, it was a struggle. I'm not going to lie. It was, it was difficult, but we knew at a really early age that our son was really good at figuring out how to fix things and how to take things apart and put them back together. And that takes a special kind of talent. You just have to kind of go with it, no pun intended, you know, and figure out what they need to do to be successful. You know, and when our son came to us in high school and I wish we would have listened, you know, he wanted, cause not everybody needs to go to college and college is not right. for everyone. And he said, I want to go to the automotive program. And we were like, no, no, no. We think you should go to college. We don't want you to do that. Well, yeah. in hindsight, we should have listened because he has been working at an auto mechanic shop since he was 16 mm-hmm. and he's doing what he wants to do. And if we had listened to him in high school, he could have gotten a couple of certifications, ASE certifications through the school. But we were dumb parents. <laughs> so don't be a dumb parent like we were. You know, listen to your child. If your child says college is not for them, then you help them find a way to do something else that they want to do that's not college related. And and that's okay. And be okay with that because those blue collar workers are some of the smartest people I've ever met. So don't be afraid yeah. of that. Yeah. And I think you just bring up, I mean, I, you know, I have two kids as well. My son has an undiagnosed neuromuscular condition. And so the whole not knowing and you want what's, but I mean, this is all so normal. And I, you know, I'm grateful that you're sharing the, like what hindsight lessons, because I think it's important, you know, parents want, want what's best for their children. And we filter it through our lens and how our brains work. Correct. I loved college. Right. And I also get why people would not, but so I love that you shared that. And I think, you know, my son, get such a wide, like, you know, we have a full waiver. He can go to school as much as it, because of his diagnosis and we got it early. Right. Right. But what you're speaking to is like normal enough. I don't, I'm putting air quotes as the podcast, but like normal enough, imagine my quotate, right. To like force through the like typical path. Right. And that's kind of what I'm talking to of like, you know, for EMDR therapists, like what kind of mess internalized messages did that brain pick up of like, there's something wrong with me. Yeah. Um, and it's unintentional most of the time. We don't yes. mean to do that, but those are the places that I really see 
EMDR being life-changing of like, you are so creative. You are so like, I love how your brain works. And the school system really doesn't even have like a template for that. And as an adult, a lot of times the person can go, yeah, you're right. And actually, you know what? I had a teacher that really let me get away with a lot. I think they saw that Mm-hmm. I was doing my best. Yeah. And you start finding those bright spots and the people that helped get you through instead of just those icky spots of, yeah. you know, I don't know how, like, I don't know how I would do now with all the screen learning. Like yeah. I find it very hard to stay oh, focused on. Yeah. The I don't. Yeah. Well, my daughter, we had one of each. So I had, my daughter was like you, she loved school. She was organized. She note taker, all the stuff, you know, loved college. In fact, she's getting her master's and she graduates in December. And she said to me, if I ever tell you again, that I'm bored, do not let me, do not let me go back to school and get another degree. (laughs) Cause she is kind of burned out. And I was like, I tried to tell you, it's a lot to handle working full time and going back to school. So I, we did have one of each. And so I, I did have a therapist when the children were younger, tell us, you need to understand that your children, even though they came from the same DNA, they are completely different human beings. And that was like a light bulb moment for me as a yeah. parent. Cause I'm like, well, they're, they're from me and my husband. They should be the, they're not the same. They're two, they're literally <laughs> right. two different people in terms of personalities and approaches and things. And thank God that therapist was smart enough to tell me that, you know, and that's when the light bulb moment really happened for me as a parent in terms of managing them. I will say that there are some amazing teachers out there who, who get students and engage mm-hmm. with them. And then there are, are teachers who, not so good. So the struggle is real. And I, I understand parents and I understand teachers and I feel you on that. So, yeah, I mean, we are all just doing the best we can. Yeah. And sometimes that's really not good enough for the kids. Yes, that so. is correct. That is correct. Yeah. That's correct. So Laura, are there any specific complexities or difficulties with using EMDR therapy for this population? Yes. You know, this is one where you know, we said the brain is incredibly complex. And I feel like I wouldn't be doing this topic justice if I didn't say, you know, part of my comfort working with neurodiversity is that I have four year undergraduate degree in neuropsychology from an institution that's very good at teaching neuroscience. So I I have a bit of a different foundation of coming into this work. So I want to validate that because I think it's hard when I look at what's available for learning about this and we're trying to like take complex neuroscience and making it, you know, sort of the practical application or explaining it in ways that speak to therapists. So that's difficult. So I think the complexity comes with the same thing that makes me so excited is that every brain is different and it becomes hard Mm -hmm. to tell you a list of things to know or do when working with neurodivergence. I think that was one of my pauses of designing a training or talking about speaking. And so what I come back to and is that our case conceptualization of a client is so important to successful outcomes. And when I consult or teach, you know, one of the things that I am constantly asking my supervisees and my consultees is, how do those symptoms make sense to you? And, you know, again, I think when you describe your son, the symptoms you saw now that you really know him and we see, or, you know, we, I'm not there, but we see who he is as an adult. You're like, wow, this symptom that I saw at 12 or 18 makes so much sense. 
And if I had the knowledge I know now, I would have done these things because I think it was just his way of asking for help or support or these things. So I, I have a lot of faith in nervous systems to actually ask for what they need. And very rarely is that in words. So one of the reasons I have a lot of hope for increased healing outcomes for neurodivergent populations is because of AIP and that adaptive information processing model and how it says our job, and I'm going to paraphrase Paul Miller here, but our job is to help them create the adaptive information processing system that's best for them. It's not to give them ours. And I love that. So that's the job. And then it is sometimes complex to figure out what pieces to put in, but I do trust that brains want to heal. They are going to survive and then they want to heal. And so I realized I didn't really answer the question. And so anytime I think that the answer is, oh, it depends on the person. It's just a chance to get curious and remind ourselves when we're working with this population is that you do the best you can on that session. And if there's something that doesn't make sense, then like you've said before, you go seek the information. Oh, okay. So I'm not recognizing what's going on with this person. I'm going to go read about, I think maybe it's dyslexia. Maybe it's, you know, let me go learn about that. And then I can get curious to ask different questions. One of my favorite things about EMDR is it's not diagnosis dependent. So it doesn't really matter what the diagnosis of this person is for us to be helpful. And so there's a lot of freedom in that. And I will also say then really practically, my disclaimer is if you're working with TBIs or seizures, make sure there's a neurologist on the team and consult. <laughs> like, you know, oftentimes when we get into more of the, there has been physical damage to the brain, it's not a processing issue. It's, we want a team. We want a yeah. medical team and I'm a supplement. So I will say that asterisk when we're concerned about brain damage or any sort of major medical condition, we are probably not the person driving treatment. We're the supplement to treatment. So I feel like I need to say both. I think those are good points. And I think that, again, we go back to the, it's not set in stone. You have to be flexible. And I know that sometimes right. that's not an answer, but sometimes that is the answer. Because if you're working with people, I mean, everybody comes to you differently anyway, because we're all literally different humans. We all have different hand, you know, fingerprints, like right. you said earlier. And so working with somebody who's neurodivergent, there, I think there's a little more layer of complication in terms of how different people are. It's just, we've talked about this before in the podcast, you know, just because I'm a white woman doesn't mean that, and you're a white woman, but it doesn't mean our life experiences are the same for our lenses are not the same. So we can't categorize, well, everybody who has ADHD or ADD does this and everybody who has a TBI does that. That's not how that works. Yes, they have a common diagnosis or they have a common condition, but that doesn't mean, and they have some things in common, but not everything in common. So we have to be flexible, like you said. And going back to the parenting discussion we had, you know, it's really easy for me to sit here with my children who are young adults and be, you know, my hindsight is clear now, 2020, you know, but when you're in the moment and you're raising kids, not so much. So don't beat yourself up too much. But if you do happen to have a child who says college may not be for me, <laughs> just try to be open to that, you know, right. just try to be open to that and help them figure out what is for them. Right. So. In therapy too. Right. Yeah. You should probably like your therapist. Yeah. 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 <laughs> We've talked about that too. If you, you have permission, therapies, find enough good therapists or a therapist that fits with you is like dating. You know, right. sometimes you have to try it out and sometimes you're, it works and 
all the cylinders are doing what they're supposed to do. And then sometimes you're like, hmm, something's misfiring and something's not right. So you have permission to find somebody else, you know, just explain to them, this is not working and here's why. Maybe there can be an adjustment made and it will work going forward. Or maybe the adjustment can't be made and you do have to find somebody else. And I know that's a huge pain in, in the behind, you know, finding somebody new, but sometimes you have to do what's best for you. And so that may be the solution. Right. Laurel, how do you practice cultural humility as an EMDR therapist? This is another good question, Kim. And I had a chance that this one I sat and thought about a bit too. So I, I'm located in West Virginia. I'm in a college town and it's different than the environment I grew up in. You know, I moved here from Atlanta, Georgia, and I grew up in I grew up in rural North Carolina, but went to high school in, in Chapel Hill. And, you know, I just constantly come back to like normal is what you get used to. And, you know, West Virginia has some of the highest rates of deaths of despair uh, in the country, you know, overdose, suicide, yes. forgetting there's another one in there, but neglect. And, and sometimes I feel like, you know, running a practice here that really strives to be inclusive, we're, we're just in survival mode. Mm-hmm. You know, we're just trying to help save people's lives as quick and as fast. And as like, I mean, sometimes dirty, right. It feels like, you know, it's like we didn't wash our hands to do this operating, but we needed to like, it, there's this like urgency here. Yes. And I think anytime there's that much urgency, the thinking, you know, part of our brains, the parts where we're really mindful, they get pushed back because again, it's like, it's survival mode. And so recently I've just been recognizing that's where I live (laughs) and I don't want to stop doing that. I don't want to stop being on the front lines of, of this epidemic that we have here in West Virginia. And I need to practice what I preach, which is pause and offer opportunity for feedback and repairs because then, you know, I'm not perfect and I don't ever want to be. Uh, and so it's, I think that's the practice is, you know, we, when you're outward facing and you have places for posts and things like that, to make sure you have space for feedback, space for reflection with our team, going to trainings. I loved being at Emdria, the Emdria conference, because there was such an emphasis on how do we do better as a community. I got some great ideas of, you know, and one thing that I really recently have just or have tried to explore is like the flattening of hierarchies and maybe being more open. You know, we were trained in this way of like, oh, we don't share, we don't disclose, right? Like it's not about me. Then also realizing then that puts me kind of at a higher power dynamic. And mm-hmm. so, and especially being located in Appalachia, we've really been leaning in here about storytelling and how powerful that is here. And that maybe we do, we share a little bit more about our stories. Like I love the origin story. I love that you shared about your family. You know, I'm starting to share more about my kids and the imperfections of parenting when you were, have taught human development and you married an elementary school counselor, like, you know, that we're, this job is not easy for us either. And, and so, so I think that's the, my practice, what I'm really leaning into is pausing and looking for places where my nervous system kind of, or my heart or anxiety jumps up because I'm like, okay, there's something there that I need to explore more. I need to own or, or something. So it's, it's the balance of how do we save lives? 
And also how do we pause and make sure that we're taking care of things that aren't like five fire alarm bells, because, Mm -hmm. you know, the one, the one alarm bell or the just like, Hey, I need help. That voice also matters. Um, or Hey, that didn't feel good to me. And so, yeah, I don't know how I'm going to do it as well as I want, but I'm going to keep trying. Yeah. So that's, that's where I am currently with that piece. Yeah. My dad actually was from West Virginia. So my dad was a coal miner's son. So I am familiar with the economic disparity that is in many, many, many parts of West Virginia, not all, but many. And I know that the opioid epidemic has been, you know, especially hard hit in certain communities that West Virginia being one state, it's been hit pretty hard. And so I do get that. My father has, he passed away in 2019 from lung cancer, but I have been to West Virginia and I grew up, my dad was military and we grew up going back there to visit his mom and even back then, and, and I'm in my mid-50s, it was still one of those states where you're like, hmm, is this all there is here? You know, and so you you look at that, and I don't mean from a glamour perspective when I say, is this all there is here? But I mean, from an economic perspective, you know, in terms of, you know, opportunities for people to to live their life and, and work and have careers and that kind of thing. And that is a difficult situation to be in, in terms of, trying to offer care to, to people who need that, like you said, the five alarm bell kind of care versus the, you know, the maintenance care or the, the less alarm bell care, you know, and you're kind of in still in that, that urgent mode. And so thank you for doing that. Cause I am sure that that is not easy to manage and balance that. And I will say that cultural humility and, and all of those things also kind of depends on where you live. You know, right. you may not have you you may not have a large population of people who are non-white in your area. I don't know. And so it kind of answering that question is is a little difficult because it kind of depends on where you physically are located and who your clients are. But we 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 like to ask that because we we want to talk about diversity and inclusion in that space because humanity needs therapists, right? And humanity needs more therapists who can relate to other populations other than white people. You know, I'm white. I've said it before on the podcast, not ashamed of being white, but I have a different life than somebody who grew up black or somebody who grew up Asian or somebody who, you know, they just have a different life experience. And so how do you as healers help people who don't look like you, didn't grow up like you, you know, and how do you make that happen? And so it's, not an easy question to answer, but again, it go, kind of goes back to who your clientele is and where you live and how those clients come to you. And and I think you, you're you saying something that's been an important learning lesson for me because, you know, that goes in all directions, right? The BIPOC experience in Morgantown, West Virginia is going to be very different than it is in Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, yeah. Or, uh, you know, and same thing, the LBGTQ plus community, mm-hmm. like, you know, I remember getting a call like over 10 years ago or an email, I don't know, but like contact and like, hey, you're the only person that openly advertises that you'll do counseling with transgender individuals. And I was like, what? Like, yeah, we did a search in West Virginia wow. and you're the only person that's openly advertising it. And I was like, okay. I'm like, so we want to put you on our list. And or, you know, I don't, I was, but I just remember being so struck by. I, it never occurred to me like not to work with 
you right. know, these pop based on where, you know, who raised me, like, let's be right. honest, based on the people that raised me, it never occurred that I would. And, and all these things have changed now, right now, where there's much more support to like openly state things. And I think that's great, but this was in 2013, it was 10 years ago. And yeah. so it's just been an interesting experience and also then getting stuff wrong. And, uh, you know, I recently got some feedback. It was very emotional and there was parts that I felt really were helpful to me just around the separation of pronouns and gender identity and gender expression. And I, I definitely got something wrong and it just occurred to me because some of the feedback was like, obviously you have no training in working with LBGTQ plus individuals. That one just felt interesting to me because I actually have quite a bit, but it had focused in the treatment of not treatment, but helping transgender individuals receive treatment. And it really had, I had like, I had kind of ignored being well-rounded in order to like support a need that was like very salient to my practice and like to my state and a population that I had been drawn to helping. And so you know, it was just one of those things of like, wow, I do care a lot about that. And I've invested time and money and I got something wrong. And I gave out that impression right. that I don't have training and that I don't care. And that's hard because I yeah. cause pain. And so I think like when we talk about the practice and the pause, that was one of those moments. That was a big pause yeah. for me, but also just, we really don't know each other right. in this world. And we're trying to form connection. We're trying to heal and this person doesn't really know me or anything about my story. And then based on a comment I made, they felt like I didn't know or care about them either. And so I think also, like you said, owning what it's like to move around the world as a cisgendered white woman, you know, we can we can own that like discomfort yeah. and talk about it. So I'm, I'm glad for space and it, it does my normal how I grew up and where I went to college is very different than what now I realize is normal in this area. And so I also think not assuming things is just so looking at places where we make assumptions and offering pe people the opportunity to respond or give us the information has been the one of the most helpful things. Again, I'm not perfect at it. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think any of us are perfect. And I, you know, I grew up a military brat and, and I've talked about this on the podcast before where I grew up on a military base and, and I lived in a little melting pot between the four houses, our house and the three others. And I learned, you know, I lived across the street from the Mexican guy who was married to the um, black woman and they lived next door to the Iranian family who was, you know, had come from, I'm sorry, Iranian family. Because at the time we had like a, not a trade agreement, but where people would come in, militaries yeah. would come in and we would train their helicopter pilots. It was just a right. training base in, in Alabama and, and. Um, who lived next door to the black couple who, who lived next door to us. And I learned at a really young age that if you don't want to play with people who don't look like you or sound like you or act like you, you're going to be a lonely kid. But not everybody has that experience, you know, and I was fortunate enough when my children were young, I worked in, a, in an association in DC and worked with many people in the LGBTQA community. And uh, I learned very young and decided, I guess I was mid the late thirties in working with them, I got some insight to how their families handled them coming out, you know, cause mm -hmm. I asked that question cause my children were still young. They were in elementary school. And I was like, well, how did you come out to your parents and how was that handled? And, you know, because I, I made a decision that if my kids 
ever wanted to be comfortable enough with me to come out, I, I didn't want them to feel like, number one, they couldn't come out to me. And number two, how would I respond as a parent? Number three, how would I respond as a Catholic parent, right? And so right. I got tremendous insight from those colleagues, and I am forever grateful to them. Now, my children are not, they're straight. We never dealt with that, but I wanted to understand and know, and I think that that really, that's the only way that you learn, really. And I know that some people are like, well, I don't want you learning from me. You should already know by the time I walk into your office. I know that some people have that kind of mentality, but quite frankly, if you've never worked with or lived with or are friends with people who are different from you, it's really hard to be diverse. So you have to learn somewhere and somebody Mm -hmm. has to kind of be your guinea pig, unfortunately, and you're going to make mistakes along the way. You know, I'm sure I've said some things over the years that were stupid uh, and were insensitive. And so I would hope that I would, going forward, you know, when I learned that I would not continue to do that in the future, I'm still friends with those people that I worked with and, and their insights and their, the work that we had and the relationships that we had. I mean, they're my friends. And so I, I, but I would never have been exposed to that if I hadn't worked with them. And so, you know, cause you kind of hang out with people who are like you most of the time, the six degrees of separation, right? You're, <laughs> the six people that you hang out with are the most people that are the people that you're going to become most like, I guess is the phrase. But if you don't expand your circle to include people who are different than you, you're never going to know. And mm-hmm. and not knowing, you know, knowing helps you become less afraid. It's like trying a new food, right? You don't know until you try yeah. it. You know, so try a new relationship with somebody. You're never going to know until you try. There's nothing wrong with trying. We'll keep going. We we'll keep going yeah, and no, getting I'll- it, trying to make it better. Yeah, that's all we can do. So do you have a favorite free EMDR related resource that you would suggest either for the public or other EMDR therapists? One thing that's really helped me feel validated in how I saw EMDR and I'm, you know, not very many. I've talked to people a lot about how does EMDR work? Eric Chamberlain published an article in the journal in, I think it came out in 2019, the network balance model of trauma resolution. And I think it's one of the single best explanations of what EMDR is and how it works. And so if you haven't read that and you want to really deepen your understanding of the neurobiology of what we're doing, I highly recommend that article. So if you remember, it's free. I'm sure it's free online. I think you can get all the the journal articles now free on Google Scholar. So that's one. And, And connected to this topic, I think it's important because if we really understand what's happening in the brain, when we experience a stressful, highly stressful toward traumatic experience. And then we understand what the brain's naturally trying to do after. I think it really helps us figure out how we intervene. You know, one of the most interesting things to me is that the salience network, which is one of the large scale neural networks involved in what we do. I mean, it sits in the middle of the brain. It's the network that goes, works with the limbic system, but it is connected to so many disorders. And it also, we the one, it's the same in all mammals. So every mammal has a limbic system and it looks like almost identical, but also across forms of neurodivergence, we don't see a ton of variance in that part of the brain. Much more of the variance is in the frontal lobe and, you know, or different connections. And so that again, supports this idea that EMDR is an amazing intervention for neurodiverse populations. Because this mechanism that's designed to save our life and also designed to heal is probably functioning very, very similar to any other brain. So that's one of mine, just a plug for 
for Dr. Chamberlain's article. Also, the neurodiversitynetwork.net is an awesome website that brought together a lot of resources, psychoeducation, podcasts. I think that's a wonderful place to just get curious and start interacting with what's out there. I haven't mentioned it yet, but the neurodiversity movement was started by a woman that is on the autism spectrum, just celebrating that, you know, all brains are amazing. And so a lot of when you look into neurodivergence, a lot of it's going to be around autism spectrum disorders, stuff written by autistics, things like that. Like, and so that's what you'll see a lot of, but as you kind of keep going, you'll get more information about other forms. So don't get discouraged if that's what first you see and you're looking for something else. Um, Judy Singer is the woman that kind of pioneered the the social movement. She's phenomenal and and we'll credit her with starting this, but it's really expanded in so many directions. So those were two that came to mind. One very neurosciencey and EMDR specific and the other much more general. So. Yeah, no, those are great resources. And I will put them into the description uh, in the podcast so people can access that information. I'll put the links in the description. So thank you. Mm-hmm. What would you like people outside of the EMDR community to know about EMDR and neurodiversity? Well, one thing is just that neurodiversity is a fact. <laughs> so we'll just start there. But outside of the EMDR community, this one, you know, I take a pause because I think this sort of goes back to how, what I think is true before I was an EMDR therapist, which is that I went, I went to a friend's school growing up and the Quaker philosophy of education, right? Is that God's light where the light is in everybody. And you like how you help someone is to help nurture their light or create space where someone else's like light can be expressed. And I, I think that's just one of the things, like, even if you're not a therapist, there are ways to support other human beings feeling safe to express their light. So, you know, that's shop local, support farmers, like people that are doing what they love, like notice that, you know, and that doesn't have to be your job. You know, I think there's a lot of time in the day and to just make sure that at some point in our day, we're practicing something that brings us or lets us get in touch with our own light that makes us feel like we matter and that we're worthy and that we're loved. That's important. And you know, how does that relate to neurodiversity and EMDR? I think like that's the whole point that this is a therapy about increasing adaptive networks, increasing the good. You know, when I give general talks to people about EMDR, I said, this therapy believes that before we ask anyone to do anything different or anyone that we want to take anything from anyone, we want to give you something first. Hey, let me show you this thing. Let me see if I can give you this resource before I ask you to change. And that's why we love EMDR. Yeah. (laughs) You know, that's why all of us were like, yeah, of course I want to be the demo, (laughs) right? Like, oh, I'll demo. And, and so I'll, you know, it, I don't care how your brain works, increasing adaptive responses, networks, coping skills, whatever you want to call them. That is a pretty amazing place to start. And I think there are many ways in which we can do that for other people, help do that for other people that aren't therapy. So that's what comes up for me is be a kind human, support and find other kind humans to connect to because trauma thrive in isolation. Yeah, that golden so rule, that. that golden yeah. rule, treat others how you want to be treated. And that's when I brought up that story about my 
my f- colleagues and friends when I worked at a previous job, my, I'm like, okay, if my, if my children did come out to me, how would I want them to be treated? Right. Mm-hmm. E- even as a parent. So how would I want my kids to be treated out in, in the world? And so if I want to treat my children with disrespect, then I would disrespect people. And, and if I, but if I want them to be treated with love and kindness and understanding, then that is how I want to treat other people. And so that was a, that was a kind of an eye opening time for me. And so I was like, nah, I wouldn't treat my kids that way. So I'm not going to treat other people that way. That's not the way I want to live my life. So good advice. Thank you, Laurel. Yeah. And I would also say in what we do working with complex PTSD, sometimes that has to be switched of like, how about you treat yourself the way that you treat others? So often we see like, all that ick, all that negativity that we were exposed to gets pointed back on ourselves. And so that it is bi-directional and I don't know, what is any of the, what do any of those details about who you love or how you want to like have to do with how we're anything? Yes, correct. Absolutely. That, and I think you're right about the self-loathing that we dump on ourselves, just the humanity in general, you know, we beat ourselves up so often. think that people who have brains that are different than other people's probably do it even more because they can't quite fit in in school. You know, they're called out by the teacher because they're fidgeting too much or their homework is messy or they're late with their homework or they didn't do it or they didn't hear or they didn't. So they internally just start to beat themselves down because they, they don't really know why they're doing that. And so not your fault, it's the way your brain is. And so try not to beat yourself up too much because you don't, you don't deserve that. I think this question may not be good for you because you knew at such a young age, you were (laughs) going to be an EMDR therapist, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you weren't an EMDR therapist, what would you be? I would probably be a cognitive neuroscientist. I would have never, I would have stayed in research. I love research. I really, you know, so I, I would probably be talking about similar things with a lot less people stories and much more like stories about mice or rats or uh, <laughs> my lab. <laughs> right? um, no, actually my like research mentor did looked at, you know, hormones and, and competition and things like that. So maybe humans, but I definitely would have a lot less interpersonal, you know, therapy stories, I think, but I also had a career in soccer too, but no, I don't, I was not meant to do that. I was meant to do something with brain. So I think I would have gotten a PhD in neuropsych and that's awesome. That's a great answer. There's no wrong answer to that question. I just like to ask it because I think it gives a different lens to the people that we're interviewing. You know, it kind of takes you out of the, oh, I'm the therapist lens. To, oh, I, I might have been this at one point in my life. You know, it gives people a little more dimension. Yeah. And I am just this. I am just a therapist, not just, but, you know, I am a and I'm a dark therapist. And so you're like, no, well, what if you couldn't do that? What would you do? Right. You now I have this like aha moment of, oh, I'm actually an educator. That's how I somewhat identify more of I help educate and people to like take advantage of their own lives or I do talks or, and, and that kind of felt like it encompassed all the things, but yeah, it is. I mean, it's, interesting when you hang out with a bunch of therapists, right? Like, again, that becomes your normal. And then you hear all the things other people think about therapists. And you're like, yeah, okay, we're, we're, yeah, I get it. You know, (laughs) we're, we are a little strange, but we love, we love each other ourselves. Like, hopefully. I think every group, I think every profession is like that. 
You know, yeah. you get together with uh, like I get together with all the association publishers or the editors or the word nerds or the grammar people. And I mean, we're just, we just think we're the smartest people in the world, you know, <laughs> but I'm sure to the outside people were thinking, Oh my God, these word nerds over there at that conference, you know, watching right. literally watching their P's and Q's and, you know, it can get a little boring for us, but we think we're cool. And so I think that every profession's like that. I think the fact that you guys rely on each other and learn from each other and share information is really ultimately what happens because that old saying about you're only as strong as your weakest link, right? And so you want to make sure that people in your profession have access to all the information that they can or the networks and the resources so that they can get even better at what they're doing, you know, and help even more people. So that's ultimately the goal. Laurel, is there anything else you'd like to add? Just that reiterate the point that shame is maladaptive. And if we can help people connect to a true sense of safety, you know, biological safety, so much is possible from there. And so I love what we do. And I have so much hope that as EMDR, but really the AIP model continues to spread, a lot of amazing things are possible. So when it comes to working with neurodiversity, to just sit with that, if you can decrease shame in your clients, you are changing their life and you're helping their nervous system heal. And it doesn't necessarily have to make sense to you as a therapist. Trust that as symptoms decrease or their ability to talk to you about what they're wanting or like as those things shift, then you're probably on the right track. So trust your gut and trust the process and go with that. That's a good way to end the podcast. Thank you, Laurel. Thank you for having me. It was fun. This has been the Let's Talk EMDR podcast with our guest, Laurel Thornton. Visit www.emdria.org. For more information about EMDR therapy or to use our Find at EMDR Therapist directory with more than 15,000 therapists available. Like what you hear? Make sure you subscribe to this free podcast wherever you listen. Thanks for being here today.